Welcome to another episode of Daf Shvui, Weekly Daf. Give me 40 minutes or so and I'll give you a Daf or so. And this is our special Hadran edition for the second chapter of Baba Batra. Hadran meaning come back again and is our custom from days of yore, or at least for the second time, uh, to celebrate finishing another chapter of Baba Batra a couple of weeks late. We have a wonderful guest, uh, Professor Charlotte van Robert, who is the Associate Professor of Religious Studies and by courtesy of Classics and of German Studies. I have to just say, first of all, Charlotte and I have been friends for probably three decades now, and so therefore I'm not going to call her Charlotte out of any disrespect, because I only have the highest respect, but just because it would be awkward if I didn't. So Charlotte Elisheva van Robert specializes in Judaism, Talmudic literature, and culture. Her interests include gender and Jewish culture, the relationship between Judaism and Christianity in late antiquity, the discourses of orthodoxy versus heresy, the connection between religion and space, and rabbinic conceptions of Judaism with regard to Greco-Roman culture. She's the author of Menstrual Purity, Rabbinic and Christian Reconstructions of Biblical Gender in 2000, which won the Salo Baron Prize for her best first book in Jewish studies of that year and was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award and Jewish Scholarship. For those of you who have been following along closely, I've quoted from that book in the second chapter. She also co-edited the Cambridge Companion to the Talmud and Rabbinic Literature in 2007, together with Martin Jaffe of the University of Washington. Currently, she's working on a manuscript entitled Replacing the Nation, Judaism, Diaspora, and the Neighborhood, and that will be more or less the subject of our conversation. Welcome, Charlotte. Thank you, Aryeh. I'm excited and delighted to be here with my old Chavuta colleague and friend. And current Chavruta, we should say. And um, <laughs> So, um, well, let's uh, just uh, jump in. Uh, start off with a basic question. We're going to be talking about Erevin. People might not have gotten it from the title, but Judaism diaspora in the neighborhood, as I understand, uh, focuses on uh, Erevin. And so let's start off with a basic question. What is an Erev? The Erev, uh, the Erev uh, how can we think about the Erev? The Erev is a ritual institution in uh, many senses uh, that has to do, I think, with Jewish neighborhood. And that's what I want to show in the book. And um, I've written a number of pieces about this. The origin of the Eruv goes back to the Mishnah. Um, also, of course, uh, during the time of the Mishnah, this would look very different than it does nowadays. And the Mishnah uh, devotes an entire tractate, a Masechet, to Eruvin. And Eruvin is really, uh, I guess one can think, think about that as a sister tractate to Masechet Shabbat, to the tractate that deals with the laws of Shabbos. One of the prohibitions, one of the prohibitions of the, or one of the 39 prohibited labors is uh, what they call hotza'ah, or bringing out something from the private domain into the public domain. And that prohibition, that particular labor, obscure as it seems, forms a red thread through the treatise of Shabbat. And the Mishnah comes up with a whole theory of domains, or a map of domains, one could say, of uh, the private, not just the private uh, in the public domain or the domain of the one, the Reshut HaYachid and the Reshut, ha, uh, Reshut HaRabim, 
the domain of the many, but also a couple other uh, domains. And then in the next tractate over, all of a sudden, uh, in a way, all of a sudden, uh, the mission turns around in Erovin and says, okay, in, in Shabbat, it's prohibited to carry something across the main boundaries from the private domain into the public domain. And here is a way to get around this. So some people have thought about the Eruv as an institution, also as a legal fiction, because the rabbis now come up with a system to merge. And that's what the term in, in a way means to merge or to mix uh, domains. It's actually not entirely clear what the object of the mixing is. If Eruv means something like mixture or merging, is it the domains or a redefinition of the domains on the Sabbath? Or we do that by means of food, because one of the practices that the Mishnah comes up with is to deposit that one of the balabasim, one of the uh, householders, deposits food in his neighbor's domain, and by that they end up merging domains. So one possibility for the merger is also the food. If we collect food contributions from everyone in the neighborhood, merge that into one food contribution, and that's sort of how the Mishnah imagines that, by that we become one food community and thereby the, in the Mishnah actually, the food collection itself is called the Eruv. And then the last possibility as an object of mixing maybe may the people, right, that the neighbors become merged into one community. So those are the various aspects that go into the formation of what in halachic shorthand we really call the Eruv. Thank you. That's great. There's a lot going on there. So there are three images I see here, the two food community and neighbors. Um, so food community is a very intimate way of mixing together. Everybody's sitting around one table and eating together. Neighbors kind of making a social community. And the third thing, though, is the walls of the city, the Lehi and the Korah, the way that there it is a fake gate around the city. So how do those two, that kind of walls of the city and the food community, relate to each other? Uh, that is a good question. Um, the way that one can, can think this through is that what defines and the, uh, the Gemara actually thinks this through in, in Erovin, what defines a place, one's primary relationship to a place. Is it sleeping or is it food? And why becomes food so central for the thinking in Erovin. And so the food community um, is established because if the primary way of relating to one's space in the home, in the household, is food, then of course the primary way of forging or of forming a community is by forming a food community. And so I think, I mean, they, they, the, the Mishnah doesn't tell us, and actually the Tosefta also, but the Mishnah does not tell us 
why and how they designed this particular way of forming a community and getting around the domain boundaries. But one way to, th to imagine that is uh, because just simply forming a food community is one of the primary ways of getting people together around one table. Great. So you write somewhere that the food community or the communalism of the Rishut Yachid, the private domain, has uh, some sort of ambiguous relationship to the yacha, the communal nature of uh, the uh, communities that were around the Dead Sea. Could you speak about that? Oh, that's an uh, excellent point. I got really interested in various models that Jews came up with at the time of the Mishnah, or slightly earlier, actually, like uh, in Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, and the Serech HaYachad is one of the texts that come, come from the community at Qumran. And there in the title of the text, you have the term that defines a community, the Yachad. And I want to imagine that some of the language that Qumran develops there, they also talk about the Rabim, the Rabim as, or the many that form the members, that, that are the members of the community that then form the Yachad, is somehow reflected in indirect ways in what the Mishnah then develops in the language of the domains of the Reshut HaYachid and the Reshut HaRabim in their language of Halacha. And the reason why I think that is, that is significant is that Qumran develops a model of what one can describe as separatism, and I've argued that, right, that, that there is a separatism involved because the community walks out of Jerusalem and doesn't want to deal with the politics at the temple or rejects the politics in the temple and then form their purest community outside of the city. So they are an anti, not conceptually, but and by uh, default, they're an anti-Jerusalem, uh, anti-urban community, and only in, in the desert can they form a community that, that uh, coheres with their ideal. The Mishnah, on the other hand, imagines itself arguably entirely in the towns and hamlets and cities. Uh, cities may be a slightly exaggerated term for the towns in the Galil or the Galilee at the time of the Mishnah, but the Mishnah clearly imagines itself in the middle of those towns. So it's by definition not a separatist document, but they work with being situated in those communities. So one of the fascinating things that we're moving forward from the Dead Sea Sacks to the Mishnah and in, in that you, you talk about a bit is that the, the Mishnah, the, the concept of Eruv in the Mishnah is a completely new concept. It has no biblical origins, and it's part of what you, you you call the rabbinicization of Sabbath law. So, could you talk about that and how does that challenge the rabbis, or does that establish the rabbis, and what does that do with the the halachic tradition? That to me is also an incredibly fascinating aspect of, especially of Sabbath law. I think uh, what connects many different Jewish texts that precede the Mishnah, and that goes back to, arguably, goes back to biblical law, is a prohibition of carrying something outside the house 
on the Sabbath. We find the prohibition in Qumran, uh, we f- in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find it in the Jubilees, in a couple other texts. And the rabbis t- take that part over in the Sabbath law. And that goes back to, and that's the only, really, the only anchor in a way of where Eruvin is coming from. The concept of Eruvin in the Mishnah is coming from is the verse in Bashalach in Exodus and Shmat in the context of the story of the, the man, the collection of the man in the desert. And there, when they uh, talk about it, right, on Friday, they should collect two portions so that they don't have to go out on Shabbos, on, on Shabbos and collect the man. You get this phrase of that you should stay in your place. You shouldn't go out from your makom, from the place that you're on, in or on. In uh, on the seventh day, and then that sort of echoes, I think, and there are a couple other places, but it echoes in the book of Jeremiah when he talks about right that people should not bring out their burden uh, to the gates, and then also in Nehemiah. So this theme of not bringing out and carrying things on the uh, on the Sabbath goes through all these what we call sometimes actually misnomer in certain ways, uh, second temple literature before the, the rabbis. And the rabbis are really the only Jews in that diversity of Jews that come up with this legal fiction of the Eruv to uh, circumvent that. Technically, that the origin really is with the Mishnah because that's where, the, for the first time, we find that language also of Eruv and Lehit Arev to form an Eruv. In the Gemara later, in the Babylonian Talmud, in the Bavli, in Eruvin, the argument is made that both the Netilat Yadayim and the Eruv, the formation of the Eruv Chatzerot, go back to King Shlomo. And that is also uh, an interesting proposition Right, so they want to in the Gemara. They want to argue that it actually the Eruv goes obviously much further back than the Mishnah, and that sort of is in a way a strategy to disguise that it's a radical innovation by the rabbis. Right, and yeah, it's it's fascinating. And also, what I find fascinating about all this is that there's a certain way in which both in the Mishnah and Tosefta in the first chapter of Shabbat and in the fourth chapter of Erevin, the ways in which the rabbis declare cities and we'll talk about domains is sort of parallel to the way that at the time, architects or uh, government officials were talking about declaring walls and cities, despite the fact the rabbis really had no political influence, right? But they were the ones who decided this is an astrata, this is Right. This is a, a, a wall. Do you want to talk about um, a little bit about the political implications of what it means to make a city with an Eruv? Yeah, but just one uh, remark back to the walls. Right? I think it's also significant that the Mishnah has very little on building things, on building cities. Right. So I, I, I would sort of underline what you just said in a way uh, that the rabbis are much more in the business of mapping the, the urban space and here's the domains, and here's the places, the paradigmatic spaces within which we think ourselves, right? which within the courtyards, the chatzer, the chatzerot, 
in the alleyways and mevoat, but you, there's very little in terms of urban planning. So the L is really a strategy on how the community situates itself within the city rather than entirely developing and building cities. And that's also situating themselves vis-a-vis other Jews and vis-a-vis non-Jews, right? That's right. Um, I mean, I guess it's a, uh, there's a couple of things going on uh, there, which is, right, if you think of Roman literature and Roman, there's, there's a number of uh, architectural treatises and how to do, how to lay out cities and whatnot. That is arguably, at least in, at that time, somewhat of an imperial practice, right? One could almost think of urban planning at that time as an imperial uh, practice and imperial strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Mishnah, to a certain degree, right, they don't just not do it, they also refuse to do that, uh, not just because they don't have the means, which is arguably the primary reason, but that's not what they, how they think about their project. It's more inserting themselves into a pre-existing urban place and how do we make a place there. So I think about the, I want to think about the Eruf also as a place-making mechanism for Jews, particularly at a time when we no longer, or when they no longer had any form of political sovereignty within, within which to design urban space. So in a sense, Shabbat is this imaginary space which Jews occupy and others occupy also, but the Jews and their others are walking in two different places at the same time. The Jews are walking in Shabbat space and the others are walking in different space. That's right. And I like, and one image that I like, can I claim authorship of that? No, I don't think so. (laughs) You can claim authorship of anything you want on this podcast. (laughs) Um, so one image to think with is, is that of an palimpsest. So the Eruv in the end is not building up monumental buildings or walls or any of that nature, but is inserting itself into pre-existing uh, urban space and works with that pre-existing urban space. And in part, right, we are now in contemporary practice, as most of us know, we come up with symbolic boundary markers, fairly invisible boundary markers. So by and large, it's, it is an imaginary mapping and it allows them in, 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 in the ways of a palimpsest, it allows other people to use the same space in very different ways. That's a wonderful image. And that bringing us to contemporary practice um, leads me to my next question. We're not yet going to get to what you and John Stewart have in common, but um, <laughs> we are jumping forward many centuries and the Arab is part of many, if not most Jewish communities in the diaspora. And you write in a fascinating way about the what you call the German century of Arabin, or how the Arab interacts with non-Jewish authorities and language. Can you speak, I want you to speak a little bit about that, but also you say that in a way, at the very moment in the 19th century when German cities are modernizing, the Jewish community is translating the Arab into German, as it were, in a way that is swimming in the opposite direction, so to speak. The cities are defortifying while the Jewish communities are, in a sense, building walls, so to speak. So can you talk about how this comes about? Uh, that, to me, having grown up in Germany, uh, a country that doesn't have any Aruf since, since World War II, for the obvious sad reasons at the moment, even though there's a couple initiatives going on. 
I got very interested in the documentation that we have that someone actually published in part about a sort of Eruf controversy from the 19th century in Würzburg. And that was documented in the correspondence of the, uh, Raf Bamberger, who was the leader of the Orthodox community in Würzburg, and the Prussian author authorities, municipal authorities at the time. Uh, and then I did some research into this. And so what I mean by what you just read was that there is an interesting moment in the 19th century where cities that had formerly, in, 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 I only know in Germany how this works a little bit, the cities had formerly their own distinct identities and were incorporated as their own political entities. And that was in very significant ways, symbolized by the city walls. And so in the 19th century, in many cities around Germany, the walls started to be raised because the population exploded and also with the advance of the railway and uh, the train stations, they, uh, the walls could no longer contain, so to speak, the urban space. And the urban historians they speak of the softening of the urban map because it starts to spread out way beyond the walls and then the walls come down. And so then in Würzburg, what was the case, and that also is in a couple, of, uh, actually in quite a few other cities in Germany at, the moment, at that time, uh, the moment the walls come down, the Jewish community, the Orthodox of the observant Jewish community, loses the boundary markers, the pre-existing boundary markers that they had relied on for the formation of their Eruv. Then all of a sudden they had to reconfigure the urban boundaries. And so that's where you get the correspondence, because then the Ralf Bamberger writes to the municipalities and says, can we install these symbolic gateways? And he has then to try to explain what the Lechi and the Korah is to these Prussianites, right? And then has to go into the rhetoric of how visible or invisible those installations are, and can we use XYZ in the urban uh, in the public sort of per urban arena to install these uh, symbolic boundary markers. And, and he's, he has to invent a German language and translate uh, halachic language to these not very, um, shall we say, well-disposed uh, Prussian authorities <laughs> to explain what, uh, what the Salahic concept is about. And it creates a very interesting correspondence to explain what we're trying to do here. Is this the first time that Halachic discussion is taking place in a European language? Do you know? Uh, that is a very interesting question. And there's earlier, right, there's earlier documentations on documentation, not just in, uh, in Würzburg, but I want to say that that may be the case. That's fascinating because we know that in, we know that Halachic discussion took place in Arabic, but uh, it's fascinating that this is how halach, this is how halacha was translated as right as the walls are being translated into Arabic or as Arabic being translated into the German landscape cityscape. That's right. I want to say in early modern, it probably is the first European language, but I uh, don't. I'm not a hundred percent sure on medieval Latin. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting point, right? So I. This is this is fascinating, and now we finally get to what you and John Stewart have in common. Um, 
<laughs> so I want to ask you to talk a little bit about the Hamptons Arif case, which was made famous by Jon Stewart and The Daily Show. We've all heard about the religious structure that's been enraging Manhattanites. Now a similar controversy is engulfing Long Island. Call it a holy war in the Hamptons. Residents of the village of West Hampton Beach says the proposal of an A-roof is an outrage. Some of the claims made in the Wurzburg Arif case in the 19th century that we just talked about about the city becoming a Jewish-dominated city or an Orthodox-dominated city, also the idea of visibility, and visibility, of course, leading to intra-Jewish conflict, not uh, only interfaith conflict. For example, the Hamptons pro-Arab party stresses that the Arab is almost invisible, while the anti-Arab folks make the counterclaim. In Wurzburg, there's a similar dispute, uh, though there it is about what the Arab signifies rather than what it seems to be what is literally visible or not. So could you talk a little bit about that and your almost involvement in it? <laughs> Uh, thank you for bringing that up. This was uh, a moment where I almost, where first of all, I could have proven uh, the practical relevance of the humanity. <laughs> uh, also where I could have earned Felix's, my son's college money <laughs> because I was solicited as an outside expert for the, the case in the Hamptons uh, by the anti-Eruf, by the lawyer. So they solicited my um, input and I was thinking law and, and long and hard about this and then I decided not to be involved because I'm actually not a critic of the concept, obviously, um, but also I didn't want to get involved in, in fighting against Jews. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the arguments, and uh, I mean, uh, right, the arguments in, in many of these controversies, uh, uh, but almost you could also say between Würzburg and the, the, the early modern controversies and the American controversies that basically, I want to say, right, started in the 70s and 80s in the U.S. in any case. What's at stake there is sort of similar because much of it is really actually about the symbolic nature and the meanings of the Eruv, the claims for ghettoization, that the Orthodox community wants to ghettoize itself um, and how to read the practice of boundary making, what's the nature of those boundaries, do they signify walls? And that's also interesting with the language, how we translate what Eruv really means or uh, the Lehi and the Korah, what they really mean. Are there walls or are they signifying the gates into the city? So some people emphasize the openness of the boundaries. So they're boundaries, but they are at the same time right? They're not boundaries that keep people out, on the contrary, but they change the behavior only of certain people within those boundaries, right? So ghettoization is something that comes up and then uh, really, really interesting in all these controversies in the legal language, the visibility and the invisibility, right? And the John Stewart skit brought that out, how visible is it when we use fishing lines as the sort of symbolic markers, which basically, if you don't know that it's there, you don't see it at all. And they become visible only at the moment of the controversies. If the string is virtually invisible, why not just pretend it's there? You can't say it's there and it's not there. If you're not involved, it's imaginary to you. But it's imaginary. It's real but it's imaginary in a metaphorical sense. So it's really imaginary. It's not quite like Alice in Wonderland. It's more like Mr. Snuffleupagus? 
Uh, we had the case here in Palo Alto also, which is how I initially got to all of this. And people went wild over how this destroys potentially the urban landscape when the moment it's up, no one remembers that that it's even there. Sort of, but it plays a huge role on. Um, I mean, obviously, understandably, in America especially on uh, the issue of religion and state, right? If religion established, I mean, is this the establishment clause, the city allows the Jewish community to put up these boundary markers and thereby religion becomes a visible marker in the public, uh, public arena, so to speak. And so then the strategy is always to emphasize the invisibility by the pro-Eruf groups. And it also seems fascinating that there's a parallel between between the anti-Eruv folks in the Hamptons and the Würzburg municipal folks in that there is a an argument for openness, right? In the Hamptons, it's Jews saying, well, we're not in the ghetto anymore. And in Würzburg, it's saying we're opening up to the modern world. And the Eruv people who are just, who aren't saying we're back in the ghetto, but are saying we can map our spaces in, as a Jewish space and at the same time, be part of what's going on here. That's right. I totally agree. Yeah. Have you ever come home from a long day of hectoring people on their way to the temple and thought to yourself, where do I go from here? I tell people that God doesn't want their sacrifices. I tell people that Assyria is going to crush their dreams and drag them off into slavery. But am I making a difference? Am I being heard? Do you ever look enviously at the big guys who made it into the book, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and think, what do they have that I don't? Well, sure, they write better than me. Their righteous rage is also touched by a sublime poetry. But what about Zechariah? Nobody understands what he's saying. And there he is, one of the 12. What's that all about? Well, we're here to tell you that it's not your fault. Baboy Ben Pakui, Prophet's Representation, will get you where you know that God wants you to be. We are a Prophets Only, Canon Inclusion, Representation Agency. Make sure your righteous rage gets the audience it deserves with BBPR. And only for listeners of this podcast, if you contact us now, you'll get a free consultation. Call us at 1-800-PROFITS-REP. That's 1-800-PROFITS-REP. Tell them Daf Shui sent you. Okay, let's learn. Let's learn. As is our custom from days of yore, we're going to, uh, where, where do you want to start? We're going to be in the second chapter. Do you want to start with, do you want to take a look at the Mishnah or you want to start on um, 22? I thought right one place to start was the Mishnah at the bottom of Dov Kaf Amud Bet. Okay, great. We'll put a link in the podcast page to that at 20B. Uh, it's like six lines from the bottom in the version of the Talmud that the widow and brothers Rome published low these 150 years ago. I just have to say that. So great. So one of the reasons that I asked you to come on the podcast is obviously the the fascinating research, but also because of the way in which Baba Batra intersects with Erevin in the way that space is delineated. And so that's, I think, part of what we're going to get out of this. Correct? Or am I just wrong? You are never wrong. <laughs> I think especially uh, the first chapter, but uh, then throughout uh, the beginning of Bhavavatra, because uh, much of it is about neighbors uh, yes. and how neighbors arrange themselves in the, play, in the space they share. Uh, right. And so uh, in Erovin also uh, the two paradigmatic urban spaces that 
world in the Mishnah, but uh, Gemara also argues with or thinks with is the chatzea, the joint courtyard, and the mavoi or the mevoot, the uh, the sort of alleyways, and I always use the old city of Jerusalem to uh, imagine those alleyways, right? The alleyways that connect the chatzerot, that uh, connect the shared courtyards, and the the, the mevoat, the alleyways are walled, as is the chatzer. And if they're walled, then, uh, right, in, in, in those walled spaces are shared, then that raises a question on how do the neighbors that dwell there, how do they make use of that shared space? So those spaces are the primary social spaces that the Mishnah thinks with and the Gemara then. And the Shuk, the marketplace, that's sort of the outside, outside of the Mevoot, even outside of the Mevoot, uh, the the larger spaces. Right. And that's that's interesting. And also in the sense that Bava Batra is looking from the point of property rights, which is almost the opposite of shared spaces. It's also it's individual space. How much how much does my property impinge on your property or how much can your property impinge on my property? What do we have to do in order to negotiate the spaces between as opposed to sharing spaces? And and those are in the same exact spaces. Right. Except you could say in the Mishnah, right, where the studio that we were going to look at connects to is in the Mishnah also we start with right the um, the question of the shared right the, if you have a if you want to make a, or you have a, a chanut how do you say a, a store, a store. A middle store in your in the shared courtyard so the courtyard the chatzer the is shared but can I then prevent you from doing that, um, right? And so then I guess the, the, the first part of the Mishnah says, if, he, uh, if there is a store in the courtyard, then yes, a neighbor can, he can prevent him and say, he's a wuss, because he's, he can say, he can I cannot sleep from all the noise from the uh, of the people get going in and out of the courtyard, right? They make so much noise. If you have a store, they go in and out. Then I cannot sleep. So the 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 the, the is shared, but what you can do in there, there we can nego- start negotiating how we right how we make the shared usage. Right, and there because there's an there's. When you share, when we share property, so there's an implication that the area between our properties, which is not necessarily an area, but sound travels over that and other things happen there, is something that we have to negotiate. And because my noise can impinge on your property value, as we well know in California. Not to say something controversial, but I have to say, and um, actually that sort of connects. When I lived in Jerusalem in the old city, in the Maronite Convent Road, in a little chatzea, right next door was a mosque. And the muazin went off at four in the morning. And that raises, right, the whole question of soundscape and around this particular issue uh, became is sort of one of the big issues or has been one of the big issues of public discussion in Europe um, on, uh, right, who gets to determine and how do I feel disturbed by what kind of sounds. Fascinating. Right. Yeah. So uh, should we finish the Mishnah? Yeah. And so then the second part of the Mishnah, 
right? But I can say aval osekelim yotzeu moche b'toch hashuk. But when he makes his pots and pans, uh, he can go uh, and he goes out to sell them in the shuk. In that case, he cannot, right, the neighbor cannot prevent him from doing so, and he cannot use a claim, So he cannot use a, a, the claim that he cannot sleep from all the noise, even though arguably the hammer makes a ton of noise. But for those uh, uh, for those things, he cannot make a noise. Uh, uh, he cannot make a claim to pre- prevent him from doing so, including the noise that children make. And that will raise the first part of the sugya that we we are not in, doing in detail here, right? What is the relationship between the? Uh, uh, there seems to be a contradiction between that. Uh, the first part and the second part of the Mishnah, because the first part of the Mishnah, we say the people noise of going in and out, that is a valid claim against the guy, uh, against the neighbor doing a a chanut there. But the people noise from the kids is not a valid claim in the second part. So how do we reconcile the two? And that gets them to go off. It has to be particular kids, meaning if someone starts a school in the chatzea, uh, and then you have all the kids trying, making a lot of noise, meaning I don't want to school in my neighborhood. Right. And that's um, the question there is also, does do we imagine the noise that's in my property, that's in my house, does not have any impact on your house? And we know practically it does. But as opposed to people walking in and out of my house, because then it makes it harder for you to get to your house or those people are impinging on the the shared property. Right. And that will play also a huge role in the discussions in Erovin, where they think about, can I make an Erov between courtyards from one to the other? And what if there's an inner courtyard and an outer courtyard? And people work through the outer courtyard. And so the right to trespass is also an important issue over there. Fascinating. So um, where do we want to go in the Gemara? In the Gemara, we could go to Kav Aleph Amud Bet. Um, after the Longisha interlude in which we learn the rules uh, or some of the issues involved in institutionalization of education in the schools, when we start on Kaf Aleph Amud Bet with Rafuna, who over there says, and you have to um, orient the audience. Right, I'm looking for it. It's Amar Rafuna, Hai Bar Mavoa de Uki Rechaya, that one? Genau, that one. So it's like, it's about, it's a third of the way down on the page. It's about, I imagine, 10, 12 lines down from the top. That's right. So there, Rafuna goes back to the question of who can prevent whom, now not in the Chatzea, but scaled up one in the Mavo, can prevent his neighbor or her neighbor from, uh, I mean, in most cases, obviously, it's his neighbor, from uh, certain uses of the space. And so here, uh, Rafuna brings the following case where he says, Hi, bar mevoa, de oke rechaya, veata bar mevoa, chavre, vekamoke gabe, dina hu, de me'akef ailave. So this 
person uh, who lives in the Mavo who has a mill in the courtyard. Um, and now comes another one who is also resident in the same Mavo in one of the courtyards, presumably, and wants to put up a, his own uh, mill of sorts in the courtyard. Then, uh, then the the dean is that the first one, the original one, can prevent the second one from doing so, because, and I think this is important, because says Rafuna, the rule is Damale ka paskatle lechayuti, right? Because he can claim is that you are cutting off my livelihood, or however you want to render chayuti. Uh, right, and that's a fascinating concepts. In other words, there's a right to earn, to be able to earn a living that's being cut off by unfair competition. But here, unfair competition just means if, if I already have a mill, then you're, you're setting up another mill. You're not allowed, and there's not enough for both of us. You're not allowing me to make a living. This, this concept also is, is comes up in contemporary 20th century, at least uh, discussions of unions in the response to literature in two ways, whether or not a union can stop workers who are not on strike, scabs, from working? Or can they say, you're not allowing me to earn a living? Or whether an owner of a, a, of a factory can say to the union, you can't strike because of because you're not allowing me to earn a living. So this is a, I have a wide-ranging implications. Right. I mean, arguably from this, he assumes we have to make sure that in the uh, in the Mavo, in that community, everyone has to, has a certain claim to or right to uh, at least uh, some sort of chayuti that that he can right, can have a living. And then he uh, right. So then the Gemara offers another case, which I'm not entirely sure how it works, uh, but it's a parallel case with fish catching fish. And since I don't know the technology of catching fish, it's a little bit uh, obscure, right? But, In Brooklyn, we used to catch fish by going to a supermarket and buying them. Uh, that's exactly right. So you have to release <laughs> the fish to some degree in order to make sure that the if you never mind, I don't know how to make that work. <laughs> we could say that this case helps him, right? Uh, right. So if you if someone has his fish net up there, and now you come, then you can release a certain number of fish. Uh, in order to uh, make sure that you share the space. And I'm going to jump over that because I want to get to, if you allow me. Um, yeah, I'm just going to give you a, like a three-minute warning. A three-minute warning? We haven't even started the I know. This area, right? Well, the upshot is then, uh, let's let at least do... Uh, uh, so Ravina says now to Rava, should we say that Rafuna is in accordance with Rava, uh, with Rabbi Yehuda? Because we learn in the Mishnah elsewhere that Rabbi Yehuda says the following: Lo yichalek chenvani kaliot veegozin letinukot mipneshe margilan eslo vachachamim materin. So we say Ravina says to, uh, to Rava, what I learned from this Mishnah is that Rabbi Yehuda says you cannot a, a store owner who lives there in the neighborhood cannot give out nuts and some sort of corn candy to the kids because that way he attracts them and gets them used to him 
although the Chachamim allow this, right? So this is sort of a case of improper advertisement that the, the store owner cannot get the kids used to him and therefore uh, um, seduce them into into just sticking with him that's by Rabbi Yehuda. And so uh, Ravina wants to try out, is that what Rav uh, Huna is thinking? And then they try out that argument. Uh, so I think we're going to have to stop here. If you have a couple of last statements, if you want to make about the sugya. Well, I mean, I think what makes this sugya in the end uh, fascinating and, and it's something to think with as we think about relationships, about neighbors and how we negotiate our shared space. They, they, um, they bring us a number of cases that move out of the Mavo into the city and right, who has the right to use the city in which way. And if others come in, how do we negotiate this? And uh, none of this is entirely resolved and they move back to right, individual law cases. So, But it's really a fascinating material to to think about the neighborhood as a Jewish space. Thank you. So it's this is this is a fascinating sugya, um, and uh, hopefully uh, you'll come back and we'll do more. We'll learn more together. I want to thank my guest, Professor Shalata van Robert from Stanford University. Everybody should go out and buy her book, Menstrual Purity, Rabbinic and Christian Reconstructions of Biblical Gender, and Wait with bated breath for her forthcoming book, Replacing the Nation, Judaism, Diaspora, and the Neighborhood. Thank you so much, Sherlata, for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Oh, yeah, this was wonderful. I am Arye Cohen. You could follow me on Twitter at Irmiklat, I-R-M-I-K-L-A-T. And as always, my deepest thanks to Eli Unger-Sargon, who produces these podcasts. It's been a pleasure to have you all with us for this time in the Beit Midrash in the closet during the safer at home quarantine. I hope you all stay safe, wash your hands, and hopefully see you next week. Bring your friends. If you liked what you heard, give us a rating on the Apple podcast page. Um, If you didn't like what you heard, then keep it to yourself. Be well and see you next week.